Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for sticking with us through our Haydn series. And this week, we're wrapping it up with the grand finale, the symphony number 44 in E minor. Both Haydn and his symphonies carry several nicknames. As you can tell from the title of this episode, Haydn was often referred to as Papa Haydn and has been dubbed the, quote, father of the symphony. Now, the Papa came from his jovial nature, and the father of the symphony comes, obviously, from his writing of classical-era symphonies. But did he actually invent the genre? Absolutely not. In fact, there were many other notable composers who wrote symphonies before him, notably C.P.E. Bach and Leopold Mozart. But Haydn was in a unique environment with his Esterhazy patronage that allowed him to write over 100 symphonies during his life. And with this kind of output, he was really able to define and refine what it really meant for a work to be a symphony. He helped to strongly establish a symphonic form as starting with a sonata form movement, followed by an adagio. Now, this is a rule that can be broken, as we'll see. The third movement was then a minuet trio, and finally, the finale was in sonata or rondo form. And of course, Haydn also used the full scope of the orchestra. These were no mere glorified string quartets. We had woodwinds and brass at the ready to add color to the full string sections. This, the Symphony Number no. 44 in E minor, was somewhat unique in Haydn's output. It is one of only seven of his symphonies to be written in a minor key, and maybe that's why it carries the nickname of the Troyer or Morning Symphony. That's Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Unlike the nicknames of some of Haydn's other symphonies, like the Military Symphony or the Hen Symphony, this one may have come from Haydn himself. It's said that he had requested the third movement, Adagio, to be played at his funeral, although this may be apocryphal information, as it wasn't actually played at his funeral. This symphony was written in 1771, again while Haydn was still working under Nicholas Esterhazy. At this point in history, we are technically in the Enlightenment period, which is a time of philosophical works, advanced thinking, and powerful emotions. Though usually this is studied in the context of writing and painting, the Enlightenment of course extended into music as well. Scholars often cite this particular symphony as being an excellent example of the famous Sturm und Drang, or Storm and Stress, of the period really showing strong emotions that had previously been more subdued, and particularly in music. These are the first little embers of what will kindle into the fire of the Romantic period. So getting into this music, of course, we'll start with the first movement. And of course, this movement is in sonata form. What else could it even be? So instead of analyzing the form of this movement, 
see our previous episode for an analysis of Sonata Form, we'll instead try to highlight some super cool moments in the music that show Haydn's unique genius writing techniques. So let's begin with the beginning of the beginning. The way the movement starts out is not exactly a theme, but more of a small introductory motif. However, Haydn does fall back on this throughout the movement. Then in measure 5, we do hear what can finally be described as the fully thought out theme. One thing that Haydn loved to do was show contrasts in his music with sudden dynamic changes. Now, of course, you'll be familiar with this from his Surprise Symphony, but we can hear that in this Symphony number no. 44 as well. For example, this phrase ends very quietly, and there are even a few beats of rest for complete silence before we go back into the full unison introduction that comes back in forte. <laughs> We also hear contrast in the music with the speed of the notes. So far, our first theme has been focusing mainly on syncopated quarter and half notes. But here we get more urgency as the violins play running sixteenths. And here we come to a very stylistically appropriate classical era motif stressed passing notes on the downbeats that quietly resolve to the chord tone. You'll have to listen behind the violin's 16th notes to the lower viola and cello. This is really a hallmark of that Stromundrang style, as it puts way more tension on the traditionally stronger beats of the measure. The exposition of the sonata form typically has a repeat, which Haydn sticks to in this work. So, we are really invested in our home key of E minor. However, when we move into the development section finally, there is what sounds like a really dramatic key shift. In reality, this is actually just the fifth B minor, but Haydn has tricked us since it was so sudden. He then sequences that entire four-bar phrase that we just heard a whole step down, starting in A minor this time. Now, in contrast to some grander symphonies, the woodwind section in this work is not very large, just two oboes. However, Haydn uses them very wisely. In addition to developing his themes in different keys, Haydn uses the oboes to provide color here as they mimic the violins. Next, Haydn has set us up to be surprised with the quiet little phrase ending jumping right into the forte unison chords. But he's now keeping us on our toes by keeping things quiet. It's almost like a scary movie where now we're waiting for the jump scare, but we have no idea when it's going to happen. Ah! There it was! 
Happy Halloween, everybody. Now, something Haydn revisited several times throughout the whole symphony was the use of canon, or different parts to play the same thing offset from each other, more commonly known perhaps as a round. Here, we have the lower string beginning the unison chords, with higher strings coming in a bar later. Before we quickly snap back together for the final iteration of the theme in the recapitulation. we'll move on to the second movement. In this case, Haydn has reversed the traditional second and third movements, as we have the minuet trio as the second and the adagio as the third. So the entirety of the minuet is actually written in this canon form, and this time we have the violin starting, with the bass voices following a bar later, and finally the violas a bar after that. The theme is very simple quarter notes for the most part, and this helps the harmonies line up spectacularly well, as you can hear in the next section. And we still remain in canon, but Haydn includes rests in the melody that make it seem more like mimicry. As we get into the trio, we hear that it is now not in canon, though the violins do start first, with the other instruments joining later. However, as those new voices are added, it's just to build up the harmony, not to play the same material as we'd heard before. We also get a horn solo though it's not a very interesting melodic solo, but it seems that Haydn really wanted this voice particularly to shine through the rest of the orchestra. Of note, this trio is bright and sunny compared to the rest of the symphony thus far. It's in E major instead of E minor. As a minuet trio, this is of course in ABA form, so after the trio wraps up, the entire minuet is played again. And now we move to the third movement, Adagio. Again much brighter than the rest of the symphony, as it too is in E major. The violins are written consordini, or muted. This makes the more gentle sounding, perhaps a little more pulling at the heart strings sounding. The vibe we get from this movement is a little bit theme in variations at first. So here's the first theme as it's presented.
and then when we hear it again, it's this time with some lilting 32nd notes rather than the smooth flowing decorations from the first iteration. Even at the slow adagio tempo, Haydn keeps the flow going. Listen as the second violins play running triplets in the background, and the first violins carry on with a melody that's not triplet-based. But eventually, the triplets do take over as most important, or rather, the only thing. Haydn writes a complex upward line that features jumps of thirds, and it's the only thing playing. Here in the development section of this movement, Haydn modulates us back into E minor. Are we surprised? No. <laughs> Though this entire movement is really quite lovely, here's a particularly striking section. Haydn writes little question and answer lines where the question part ends with a downward step and the answer ends with an upward step. It's a very simple movement, but it clearly shows a buildup of stress and its conclusive release. The whole movement ends very sweetly back in E major, and the final measure features that classical era stress and release to the final tonic chord. And now, the finale. Right from the get-go, this is a furious-sounding movement. After our initial presentation of the theme, Haydn adds some nice accompaniment in the background. Although he has done this in all the other movements, this is the first time the accompaniment sounds more like a counter melody rather than just some background. In the second part of the exposition, Haydn really focuses on large leaps in the strings, sometimes up to an octave. This gives the impression of almost two offset voices, an upper and lower part, that are playing together, even though it's written as just one line. And again, the jump scare dichotomy of quiet and loud. This next part may be one of Haydn's jokes. We have an upward sequence. Now, normally sequences last maybe a few measures at most before resolving in the key they are headed towards. However, here Haydn just keeps taking the sequence up and up and higher and higher. 
Remember Haydn's canon obsession? Well, here we have a mini canon in thirds between the first and second violin. This movement has so far been all drive, and well, Haydn wants to put on the brakes just a little bit. But to do that, he doesn't change tempo. Instead, he just changes the note lengths. For a few measures, there are no eighth notes, just half notes, and as a result, it feels like we've suddenly come to a halt. And here he uses somewhat the opposite technique. We have upward eighth notes, but there are rests in between each group. However, Haydn then exactly mimics the phrase, but with no rests, so we gallop right up to that faster tempo. And from here, the movement is non-stop until the end. The violins have wavering eighth notes as the winds and bass voices have iterations of an E minor cadence before finally running into the big final chords. And with that, we come to the end of our Haydn miniseries. Hopefully you have a better understanding of the way that Haydn helped evolve and define the symphony in classical music literature. One of the things that I found most interesting is how he outlived Mozart on both quote-unquote ends of Mozart's life. So he influenced the young Amadeus, who then influenced Haydn right back. And I think as you can hear and appreciate this evolution and refinement in Haydn's output, ultimately becoming the pinnacle of the classical era before passing the torch to his student, Beethoven, who would push us forward into the Romantic. And we hope that you enjoyed listening to this morning symphony from Haydn. And if you are mourning the end of this mini-series, don't forget you can go back and listen to it from the beginning or any of our other numerous episodes in our back catalog. And be sure to share them with a friend as well. Also, I can't promise that we won't talk about Haydn again. That is true. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Symphony No. 44 in E minor was performed by the Intermountain Classical Orchestra, conducted by Jeff Manukin. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.